0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Iowa, Arkansas, Florida, and Utah have all passed a new kind of legislation that bears on school choice in this current 2023 legislative session. It's called Education Savings Accounts. They've joined Arizona and West Virginia in offering this opportunity to thousands of additional families. One of the interesting aspects of the new legislation is that these accounts are open to all families, all students. Previously, school choice programs involving private schools were limited to disabled children or those from low-income families. The new laws are universal school choice. Education and savings accounts also allow families to spend their education dollars that are given to them by the state on whatever they want, as long as it's educational. At least some states seem to be doing that. Although it continues to be concentrated on uh, private school tuition, it's also being used for tutoring, online learning, and lots of other purposes. So, are we entering a new age in the school choice movement Is School Choice going universal? Is School Choice abandoning its charitable mission for helping those in greatest need? Is it abandoning schools in favor of homeschooling? What's happening to School Choice? Are we entering a new era? To discuss these issues, I'm pleased to have with me today Corey DeAngelis, a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, an organization that's been behind many of the efforts in uh, several states throughout uh, the country. So, Corey, welcome to the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hey, Paul, thank you so much
0: for having me. So, Corey, can you first bring our listeners up to date? I've listed a number of states here, but are there others that I've missed? Uh, What's the state of school choice in 2023 in the state legislative uh, bucket?
1: Well, you hit the nail on the head, Paul. Uh, In the past two years, six states have gone all in on education freedom, allowing all families, regardless of background, regardless of income, to be able to take their children's state-funded education dollars to the education provider of their choosing. That could be the public school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. But if not, that funding goes into an ESA, education savings account, which can be used for private school tuition and fees. Uh, and other home-based learning activities, any approved education expense. That's Iowa, Arkansas, Utah, Florida, West Virginia, and Arizona. So over 10% of all states have gone all in on school choice in just two years. So the momentum has really picked up and it has has been much bigger proposals than we've seen in the past. So 2023 is already a record-setting year for school choice when it comes to the number of students becoming eligible for school choice initiatives. We have other states on the radar as well this year. We're not even, we're not done yet. This is only April. And it's uh, mostly red states engaging in friendly competition to empower school cho- uh, families with school choice, including Texas, Oklahoma's Senate, as well as Texas Senate have passed universal school choice initiatives. Uh, and and uh, actually it was the Oklahoma House uh, and, and, the, and the Oklahoma Senate passed a, very expansive, but not universal program. South Carolina Senate has passed a, uh, a school choice initiative in the form of education savings accounts as well. So there's a lot of movement going on. Nebraska, for example, another red state. Finally, with their unicameral, uh, they require a a two thirds majority to overcome a filibuster. They finally done that for the first time this year. They need to pass it two more times to their unicameral with two thirds support. Uh, and I think it'll it'll happen. They already did it once. Uh, and Nebraska is one of the states that doesn't have any school choice in, in, in the form of charter schools or private school choice initiatives yet. And I think a lot of the, the story here is that the teachers unions overplayed their hand by pushing to keep the schools closed for so long, starting in March of 2020, that families got to see another dimension of school quality that's perhaps even more important than anything that can be captured by a standardized test, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with their values. Now you have families from all backgrounds, low income, higher income, pushing back at school board meetings, pushing for the right to educate their children as they see fit. And look, whether a school is indoctrinating your kids in in values that are aligned with yours or not, is much more likely to mobilize a parent to push for change than standardized test scores, especially when that parent has their kid in a school that is an A-rated school by the state, or maybe their kids are coming home with great scores on their math and reading tests, these families are pushing for change. And so the political dynamics have shifted over the past couple of years as well. So
0: I think another possible change is that the school choice movement has unified or they've broadened their coalition. Because in the past, I've always felt that the school choice movements has been divided into three parts, or you know, since around uh, it, it 2015, it sort of divided into three parts. There was the charter school group, and then there was the uh, tuition tax credit or school voucher group, and then there was uh, the homeschoolers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the homeschoolers really were suspicious of these other two, and the charter school people were suspicious of the homeschoolers, and is everybody was suspicious of one another. But now I sort of think the homeschoolers and the private school people are finding common ground with this uh, education savings account. Do you you think that's part of the story here?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the story. And look, I'm in Texas. I'll be testifying in the House Education Committee uh, this week. The uh, bishop in the Dallas Fort Worth area, uh, Michael Olson, actually put out a video in support of Uh, uh, the school choice policy floating around the legislature that just passed the Texas Senate by an 18 to 13 vote. So coalitions are are coalescing around this policy to empower families. And, you know, there are still some homeschool groups that are skeptical of allowing the funding to follow the child. But I think also more in the homeschool community are seeing that they could actually benefit from ESAs by using the funding for homeschool curriculum, or even micro schools, perhaps families that aren't even Doing pure homeschooling, but they're doing something that looks a lot like it, where you have five to 10 children together in a household where families are economizing on the process of homeschooling. And look, the opposition from some of the people in the homeschool community seems to be like they're making perfect the enemy of the good because you don't have to accept the funding. And government can already regulate private and home education today without school choice. So we might as well take the incremental victory. And I think a lot of homeschoolers are coming around to that realization that uh that that you don't have to accept the funding. And in fact, homeschooling might be more likely to be regulated in the future if more kids are being uh, educated in government-run schools that teach you to like big government policies. Those students may grow up to vote to regulate home education later on without school choice policies. So we should take the wins when we can get them.
0: Well, so here, let me ask you another question. There's been uh, this, this going to universal school choice. Everybody's now eligible. That's not the way the school choice movement began. They said, this is a civil rights issue. This is an equal opportunity issue. We want to focus on school choice for those that are in greatest need, those that are least well served by the public school system, those who are disabled, those who are from low-income families, those who's uh are attending failing schools now all of a sudden the language is shifting and we're going to give this is this mean that the school choice movement is abandoning its uh, civil rights uh mission no not at all even
1: with the universal school choice program you still had the least advantage benefiting the most because uh the most advantage in society already have school choice in the form of they can pay out of pocket for private school tuition and fees or they're more likely at least to be able to live in neighborhoods that are assigned to the best, quote, unquote, public school. So funding the student directly, regardless of the eligibility of the program, uh, leads to more equality of opportunity, allows for more families from less advantaged populations to access private and home education as well. And when you make the programs universal... I mean, the reality, whether we like it or not, is that a poor, that programs targeted to the poor tend to be poor programs. You want to make the programs more like Social Security than food stamps, so you have broader coalitions pushing to continue to keep them moving forward.
0: Well, this is what one of my colleagues at uh, Harvard. She was always on the left uh, side of the uh, political spectrum, but she always argued we should have uh, social welfare programs for everybody, not targeted. So you're making the same argument as my uh, left-wing colleague.
1: That's right. And it's more likely to create political coalitions to keep the uh, programs going, which disproportionately benefit the least advantaged. When you include more advantaged groups, they have more political power, they're more likely to influence uh,
0: the outcomes. But no, the other problem that people have raised about the education Savings accounts is that they could imply a lot of government regulation. You know, and that you just had a tax credit program where if you, if it was a private school, you paid the tuition, you got a tax credit for it if you were from a low income family. So that's a fairly simple program. You just have to identify, is this actually a school or not? Now you have to decide, well, you know, is this actually an educational service? How are you? Isn't there an awful lot of administrative apparatus that are going to get uh, built around these education savings accounts?
1: Well, there could be some administration to, to make sure that there isn't fraud and make sure the funding isn't spent on big screen TVs. I mean, that's kind of a light handed touch uh, of, of so-called regulation that's just making sure it's not fraud- fraudulent purchases. Um, but look, we have that in the status quo, too. the we have the Department of Education. We have a lot of administration in the in the current system. So this move towards allowing the funding to follow the child and allow the families to decide uh, creates less bureaucracy and and more freedom on the part of the parents. And especially when you look at the bills that are floating through state legislatures, the regulations seem to be pretty light. If you look at the one in, uh, Texas, for example, there was one by Mays Middleton, Senate Bill 176. He included specific language against regulation that the government can't control the creed, curriculum, admissions processes of the schools. So th- those are things we should be looking for as well.
0: Well, that has to do with schools. But how about, you know, I'm taking uh, my my children and grandchildren to, to Europe this summer. We're all going to have a great time together and we're going to go down the Danube. I think this is going to be great educational uh, activity for, uh, for my grandchildren. Now, is this going to be, can can I, if I were in the right state, could I pay for this out of my education savings account?
1: I think you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to run that by the department. A lot of these are pre-approved expenses and it, it would really depend on the language in, in the bill.
0: So if you can use it for, for a vacation in, in, on the Danube, uh, what can't you use it for? I mean, isn't isn't isn't, isn't this going to become another example of uh, fraud and abuse in government programs?
1: I mean we we have fraud and abuse in the current government run school system. and so we shouldn't look look at outlier uh, happenings to dictate policy because I mean, based on that logic, some public schools have fraud sometimes. Does that mean that we should get rid of the public school system altogether? No, and in, in, instead, we should look towards that fraud and minimize
0: it as much as possible. Well, I agree with you completely, but that's not what is going to happen with the news media. I can read this story in the New York Times. Uh, you know, I can just I can actually write it. I could put it into chat and it would come out and I can see what it would say. So so how are you going to make sure that these kinds of stories, these, uh, you know, horror stories don't come out and uh, undermine the objective that you're that you're uh, uh, pursuing here?
1: Yeah, I mean one way to do it is to make make the purchases uh pre-approved uh, from a list of providers online and some states have done that. Uh and so th- in a lot of these proposals the funding doesn't actually go into the parents' hands literally it's it's uh a list that they can that they can choose from or uh so that I mean that's uh that's one way to minimize fraud. Uh it it might take some some extra Work on the front end, uh, but there's a, a limitation on how much of the funding can be used towards these administrative expenses, for example. Um, and so, I think that's one way to to do it. Of course, the the media who uh, if if there's actors in the media who are against the pro- policy, they're going to do that. Uh, they're going to do whatever they can to 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 make it look like it's a ineffective policy. Of course, they're going to do that, but. Uh, our side on, in favor of school choice will have to tell the positive stories and, uh, and remind people that fraud happens in all sectors. Uh, and the best way to minimize that and to hold people and to hold uh, institutions accountable is to allow
0: the families to make the choice. So this is a universal program. And uh, that sounds like it's available for everybody. But is there dollar limits on it? So there are only going to be so many expenditures uh, this coming year, or what are the limits that are being placed on these programs?
1: Yeah. So in Utah, for example, I believe it's about 5,000 students total. Um, So it's universal eligibility based on income. And so everybody's technically eligible based, based on their income. But programs are capped in some states like Utah, where it's only 5,000 students. In Arizona, it is not capped. It's a true universal program, all, fa- all families eligible. And then as far as the funding per student, it's typically tied to a fraction of what w- was spent in the traditional schools. In Arizona, the, the government-run schools spend about 14000 per student, but the average ESA is only about $7,000 per student.
0: Now, can you get a good educational experience for $7,000. I mean, if you're going to have half as much money available to your child's education as is being spent in your local uh, district operated school, how are you going to get uh, quality educational experience out of your your uh, funding?
1: Well, when there's competition, you know, you can do more with less. And I mean, if you look at throwing more money into the current school system, a lot of it doesn't go towards teacher salaries. A lot of it doesn't go towards improved academic success. Uh, and I would argue throwing more money at the problem isn't the solution. So you can spend, you know, twice or three times as much as what you spend today. And well, you might not get better outcomes if there isn't an incentive to spend that money wisely. And so with in the private sector, with half the amount of funding, you might be able to do just as well or even better. And in Arizona, for example, with to, to go forward with this with this example uh, of $7,000 per student, Goldwater Institute did a report showing that the median private school tuition in Arizona is around $7,000 per student. So you can't doesn't you can't necessarily access 100% of the the, the private schools, the ones that cost uh, at the very top, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars a year, but you can access a lot more schools than you would have been able to before. And if the $14,000 is really what matters, guess what? You can still keep the public school. You can still choose to send your child there if the money is actually what leads to the best outcomes. Uh, and Then also, let's say the tuition is eight dollars or $9,000 or, or $7,000 just to get you all the way there. Every little bit helps. It's a step in the right direction. Those families who could have afforded $1,000 perhaps, but couldn't afford the full $8,000 this would be uh, uh helpful so in
0: these programs you're able to top it up this is to help defer yep. expenses it, it isn't it, you're not restricted to the amount that you get in the education savings account you can add your own uh, uh funding from your from your pocketbook uh to the to the total yes
1: yeah, so you can top up this isn't true in every single existing school choice program in the country but it is with the new ones Louisiana for example, Uh, The Louisiana Scholarship Program has a provision in it where you cannot uh, charge more than uh, than the voucher amount. So a lot of the private schools that are more expensive uh, reasonably say, you know, we can't do this financially, and they don't participate in the program.
0: But under the education savings accounts, they're allowing the families to add from their own resources if they wish to.
1: I, I don't believe that you'd be able to put it into the account, but let, let's say you had a private school that was charging more than the ESA amount. You'd be able to, the, the school isn't regulated in a way to where they can't accept additional funding. You would be able to, to pay out of pocket for the the difference.
0: Well, so uh, all that sounds, uh, sounds great, but it really sounds like this is mainly in the red states and not in the blue states that the Democrats, uh, where they control the legislature, they're not moving in this direction do you have any counter examples do you have any uh hints that uh school choice can break out of the uh the division that we mm-hmm. in the in the country right now
1: it is mostly in red states that are engaging in this friendly competition uh but i believe that we could achieve bipartisanship or non partisanship in the in the long term through hyper partisanship in the short term and what i mean by that is The more that the GOP leans into school choice and parental rights as a political winner, the more it will become politically disastrous for Democrats to oppose it. I mean, look at what happened to Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. Uh, He lost in a state that went 10 points to Biden just the year before to Republican Glenn Youngkin on the issue of education. Glenn Youngkin won with education voters by six points, according to Washington Post exit polling. And that was the number two issue in that election. And so the more that the the Republicans can win on the issue of of parental rights and school choice, the more I think Democrats are going to say, you know what, maybe we should support it too. And and they'll have to make a choice between the teachers union and the kids union, which is this new special interest that has emerged, the parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. And in fact, in the the midterms last year, there wasn't a, a red wave, there wasn't a blue wave, but there was a school choice wave. Uh, 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children, won their races in 2022. And so we have also seen some high-profile Democrats supporting school choice publicly. I mean, if you look right before the midterm election of 2022, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, a Democrat who was the sitting attorney general who was up in the polls by a lot, switched his education platform right before the election to include education savings accounts. He actually specifically mentioned Lifeline Scholarships, which which was a bill that passed through the Pennsylvania House that's controlled by Republicans. And it was a bill that was championed by uh, a Republican representative. So now you have Josh Shapiro, a high-profile Democrat, that he felt compelled to switch his stance on on school choice, right before the election, is good is good news for families going forward.
0: Yes, but I haven't seen the Pennsylvania legislature enacting the school choice program. So you, you get that this there is true. This leadership is shifting in some cases. But even in Virginia, I don't think we've had any school choice legislation, despite the election of a governor and a lieutenant governor who are very much in support of it.
1: So uh, last year, Virginia had an education savings account passed their Republican-controlled House in a 52-48 vote, but it died in Senate Education Committee because that, you know, the Senate is still controlled by Democrats in Virginia, and and the Senate Education Committee in particular is stacked with Democrats. I think they have a two-seat majority in Virginia. Uh, So, but, you know... um, Who knows if the the makeup will change in virginia after the next elections but milton friedman said it best that it's not about putting the right people into office it's about creating a political climate of public opinion where it becomes politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing and i think it's now becoming politically advantageous to support parental rights in education and in some cases they form a political suicide to come out against it so hopefully this leads to more bipartisanship. I mean, in Florida, we talked about earlier, their house, they passed universal school choice, one of the, the six states to do so. They had four Democrats vote in favor of it in their house. In Georgia, they had one Democrat vote in favor of their expansive school choice proposal uh, a couple of weeks ago. So there's there's some Democrats coming along, not as many as, as we would like to see, but it's ultimately going to come down to political pressure, and I think parents emerging as a new special interest group might change these dynamics even more going forward.
0: Well, let me ask you about charter schools, because it seems to me they're getting squeezed. On the one side, the Republican Party is moving in this direction of education savings accounts, universal choice, uh, maybe tax credits, but they're, they're no longer giving as much support. I don't hear as much talk from Republicans about charter schools uh, and meanwhile, the Democratic Party is really turning on uh, charter schools. Uh, you know, in Denver, the school board was uh, uh, defeated because of a union coalition for for having uh, sponsored too much school choice legislation. You're seeing that in Chicago with the latest uh, primary race, where the charter school supporter is defeated uh, by a union leader in the in the Democratic primary. So is char- are charter schools losing out in the process?
1: I think it'll be difficult for opponents of school choice to do much to, to infringe on the rights of families when it comes to choosing charter schools, because charter schools already have a pretty broad coalition or of families using public charter schools. You have six or more percent of, of K-12 students in the U.S. attending public charter schools, and when families get school choice, they fight really hard to keep it, and so you essentially have a lot of, um, I guess you can call them a, a basically a, a special interest of, of families who want to keep their kids in charter schools, so perhaps maybe charter schools aren't expanding as much as, as we would like to see, but I don't see them... Uh, being in threat of of being eliminated or or rolled back particularly in red states um it, it may be more of a issue in in blue states for example in Rhode Island uh last year i, I believe it was they voted to uh have a three year moratorium on expanding charter schools uh so that's that is an issue and but at the same time when the more the appetite improves for school choice, whether we're pushing for charter schools or or for education savings accounts or other types of tax credit scholarships, that mood overall should increase the likelihood that, that charter schools will be able to expand either now or in the future.
0: Well, how significant do you think the recent Supreme Court decision is uh which said that uh, you can't deny aid to religious schools if you're providing it to secular ones. This was uh, the Maine uh, school Mm voucher for, uh, Maine had a law that said uh, religious schools couldn't participate in the program, even though uh, secular schools could. So uh, the court said that was unconstitutional. Uh, And some people say that's opening up the possibility of religious charter schools. Do you see this as a new avenue, part of the new, thrust of the choice movement?
1: Yeah, before hesitation uh, revolved around, you know, the so-called separation of church and state when it came to school choice, particularly uh, private school choice because the funding could be used at religious schools, but there was never a separation of church and state issue with school choice. One, those words are not in the U.S. Constitution, but when it comes to the Establishment Clause, the the, the school choice initiatives at the K-12 level are perfectly constitutional at the federal level for the same reason why the uh, Pell Grants, for example, don't violate the Establishment Clause. You can use Pell Grants, public dollars, at private religious universities, and no one has a problem with that because the direct beneficiaries are the students, and they can choose between public and private religious or non-religious providers. You can go on and on with examples. With pre-K programs, Head Start can be used at religious institutions. Medicare dollars can be used at religious, uh, religiously affiliated hospitals, and you can go on and on with examples. So that was never an issue, but this gives legislators more uh, comfort in knowing that the, the 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 constitution is on their side when it comes to school choice policies and in the carson v Macon, the main case that you uh, referenced the court the majority opinion also although they didn't directly uh rule on the establishment clause they referenced uh that it's clear that school choice initiatives do not violate the establishment clause uh and some you know uh, Attorney generals are referencing the recent uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, to to also point out that under Espinoza and, and under Carson, that school choice should be allowable uh, under their state constitutions as well. So we're seeing that the Supreme Court is dealing a had dealt a, a major blow to the the, the so called Blaine amendments.
0: Yeah, I see bigger threats to the school choice movement coming from state constitutions. There's a lot of state constitutional questions that have come up with respect to uh, the education savings accounts. Are they uh, the, the law in many of the constitutions of many states call for a thorough and efficient or unified system? And this has been interpreted by some courts as uh uh, saying that the, these choice programs are actually in violation of the state constitution. Do you see this as a major barrier?
1: I don't at all. That's just an excuse to vote against school choice programs. And look, is the current school system thorough and efficient? Maybe they should think about that before citing the their constitutional provisions. But I mean, all these clauses say, which basically all uh, state constitutions have in them, an education clause, is they say that you have to have a publicly provided uh public education system. And but one, that doesn't need to occur in government-run schools. And two, private school choice programs, you don't have to spend the money at the private school. You can still take it to the public school system if you if you would like to do so. And this has this doesn't, these bills don't call to eliminate the public school system. These bills don't call to eliminate funding of public education. And so families still have that choice to take it to the public school or to a private provider. It's still funded. Uh, uh by the taxpayers and you still have the the right to make that choice and we've won most of these cases in state uh supreme courts except uh one there's one exception from uh this year i believe was in um Kentucky they had a new private school choice program that was recently struck down so they're going they have a bill that was actually co-sponsored by the speaker this year to amend their constitution um uh, to allow for school choice in in the state of Kentucky. So there's, you know, mostly we're winning on on that battle, but the Kentucky uh, is, is the outlier when it comes to the state constitutional arguments. So if
0: there's so much support out there for school choice, then how do you explain the primary in uh, in in, uh, in Chicago, where which really took a lot of people by mm-hmm. surprise? It looked like Paul Ballas was going to win this election that. Uh, he had uh really established his uh, uh credentials as a supporter of, of charter schools. Uh and uh he was a Democrat and a loyal Democrat, and uh yet uh he gets uh he gets uh you know edged out by the mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a union enthusiast, somebody who's a union organizer. Isn't that show that the power of the teachers union is stronger than ever?
1: Well, you win some, you lose some. You know, I, I cited the statistic of AFC doing well and winning seventy-six percent of the races last year, but you know, we didn't win them all. And in Chicago, this is still a, a deep blue area, and uh, most of the opposition uh, that that you see to uh, school choice programs, although we have support across party lines, is the lowest amount of support tends to be in in the bluer areas. And this is about special interest politics as well. And Chicago Teachers Union is one of the most influential and powerful teachers unions uh, in the country. They did really step on it a lot in in the pandemic, where they they were striking in 2022 to keep the schools closed in Chicago. They. Uh, they were tweeting that it was racist to reopen schools. They they did everything they could to refuse to go back to work while they were vacationing. Their board members, one of them at least, in Puerto Rico, while saying they couldn't go back to work. I mean, they just made a total
0: fool of themselves. But look at look at you're just giving you're just giving all kinds of reasons why the union should have been clobbered in this election. I mean, how could a union that was so irresponsible? Over the last two three years, actually have so much clout in this in this uh, primary election.
1: Well, because uh, elections aren't only about logic; it's also about uh, special interest power dynamics. And whether we like it or not, the Chicago Teachers Union uh, they have power in numbers, and they also have power in money that they uh, that they get through the publicly funded uh, school system. So they they donated a lot of money to to Brandon Johnson. And gave him their full throat support. So, you know, everyday voters are not like, um, you know, they're not like you and I, where we're we, we're really well attuned to the what's happening in education policy world. But most a- the average voter is, you know, they they have a, their own jobs to do. They have to take care of their kids, and uh, you know, so a lot of this is influenced. The outcome of the election is influenced by. Um, these special interest politics
0: and, and contributions from the union. So how do you see the future then for the choice movement, given that reality of politics? Is is uh is school choice uh hitting up to its maximum strength in the in the current legislation, or do you think it's going to be able to move from from where it is to uh to reach still higher levels of uh accommodation of that uh parental demand?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to continue to move forward in red states. Look, we've seen the six states go all in. They've all been GOP trifectas: Republicans controlling the the House, the Senate, and the governor's office uh, when the bills uh, were enacted over the past couple of years in those six states. And I think that the more, you know, we'll see more of these red state dominoes falling, and then perhaps some uh, courageous. Democratic governor will uh will support the policy. So, I mean, we're already seeing hints of that in Pennsylvania with Josh Shapiro. Perhaps they get a little more of a limited um school choice program like lifeline scholarships for kids in failing schools. And I think this is also a path forward for Democrats. I mean, they can kind of play it both ways too. The Republicans can be the, you know, um the full supporters of universal policies, and the way that the Democrats can come in and, and try to please the union still and then also try to not come out too hard against parents as they could say well i'll support it in this limited fashion like Josh Shapiro was doing like his opponent Mastriano was the full-throated supporter of universal whereas Josh Shapiro said you know you know i i sent my kids to private school but it, and i'm not a hypocrite because i do support it for the kids in the worst failing uh, public school districts. So uh, you can't label me as an anti-school choice guy if I at least support it in some fashion. So however that shakes out, I think if there is some support from Democrats, that's that's overall going to be a win for the Democrats uh, at the polls, but then also for families going forward.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Corey, for uh explaining all these uh significant new developments in the in the uh, school choice landscape especially uh, the uh creation of education savings accounts so thank you for joining me on the education exchange
1: thanks so much paul
0: i have had with me today on the education exchange corey deangelis a senior fellow at the american federation of children i am paul peterson this is the education exchange please join me for a new podcast every monday at noon Eastern time.